0: If you're looking for a new dentist, find them at WeissmanFamilyDental.com or call them at 303-494-0101. And tell them Audio Information Network of Colorado sent you. Your regularly scheduled program is not available at this time. Please enjoy this special broadcast on AINC. Thank you for joining us for the Boulder County News. My name is Leslie Madsen. We'll start today with news from Louisville. Use tax demonstration. Louisville residents protest high tax rates and other fees that are falling onto fire victims. "Chance of one community and share the burden echoed at the Louisville City Hall last Saturday morning as dozens of residents protested high use tax rates and other fees that have fallen on the 550 Louisville residents who have lost their homes in the Marshall Fire. The tax in question, which is Louisville's use tax, is intended to fund rebuilding efforts after last winter's fire. The protesters noted tax revenues have gone not only to rebuilding individual homes lost, but also to funding the city's open spaces, recreation center, and historical sites. Now fire victims said that they must pay over $20,000 on average in use taxes which protesters cited as an unfair burden for the 6% of residents who have lost their homes to the fire. According to Bring Our Lewisville Families Back, Change.org, according to that petition, the city's use tax and other permitting fees are disproportionately high compared to surrounding areas. Total costs for Louisville's residents are 2.7 times higher than those in Superior, and 1.6 times higher than those in Boulder County. Jill Ruggles, who is a demonstrator who has lived in Louisville area for more than 30 years, and she did lose her foam in the fire, noted that the high tax rates have made her attempt at rebuilding more financially challenging. We love it here, Ruggles said of herself and her husband. We just want to be able to afford it. Those who lost their homes in the fire are, on average, underinsured by $242,000, which objectors noted makes the high-use tax costs even more burdensome. To afford the many costs of rebuilding, many of the protests reported having to pull from savings and retirement accounts. In an effort to ease these costs, use tax opponents proposed rebate for those who independently rebuild their homes and a rebate on all use tax funds that went to broader city purposes rather than directly toward rebuilding homes. The Change.org petition has outlined these requests and has garnered over 1,100 signatures as of last Saturday morning. Signs held by protesters expressed support for the petition's goals, reading, have a Heart, Help Us Rebuild, and Ab Use Tax. Liz Orlin, who recently retired as a Louisville Elementary School teacher and who is also a 28-year resident of the area, said that her decision to protest was driven by the lack of support that she has felt from city government since losing her home. Orlin will have to pay $14,000 in use taxes. I'm out here to protest the exorbitant, Exorbitant taxation and user fees, she said. The hardest thing for me is that we have to keep advocating for ourselves, and some members of city council are just not advocating for us. It's kind of gut wrenching. Orlin noted that some officials in the city of Louisville have been more supportive than others in aiding fire victims. City Council member and ward three representative Kyle M. Brown attended the demonstration. And he spoke about his goal to reduce the financial burden on those who have lost their homes. It is my goal to get each and every one of you back into your house as soon as possible, Brown said, eliciting cheers from the crowd. No tax from the city should keep you from getting back into your home. Brown went on to encourage protesters to attend Tuesday evening's 6 p.m. Louisville City Council meeting to voice their concerns. And despite the disappointment that we're expressed with City, government's response to the fire, she noticed, noted that the overwhelming support that she has received from the broader Louisville community since losing her home. I can't even tell you how many parents, friends, and friends of friends have worked to help and support us, she said. It's unbelievable the number of people in this community that are coming forward and helping all of us to rise above it. And then follow-up news from that Protest On Tuesday, Louisville residents expressed mounting frustrations about the financial and logical hurdles surrounding the ongoing Marshall Fire rebuilding process during the public comment session at the Louisville City Council meeting. Prior to the public comment section on Tuesday night, the Louisville Council heard a Marshall Fire recovery report summarizing the last six months of rebuilding efforts the debris removal progress, the resource resource assistance programs, and plans for a first anniversary remembrance. Most of the public comment sessions saw residents who lost homes in the fire seeking relief from the city use tax. The city use tax is the equivalent to a sales tax on materials, and the tax is paid to the city upfront as when taking out a permit rather than at the point of sale. Instruction items fall under those materials. In Louisville, the city use tax is a restrictive tax, meaning that it does not go into the general fund, but it is earmarked for other funds, the majority of which is a capital improvements fund. The way that the use tax is levied and collected, and the restrictive nature of these revenues to specific funds, eliminates... The elimination or waiving of the use tax really is not feasible, said Interim City Manager Megan Davis. Council could consider a rebate or a grant program, which would likely occur through the general fund in order to provide tax relief. And that's what Council would like to do, and staff will work with Council to fund the best approach for implementing something of this nature. Darren McKean, who has lived in Louisville for 22 years, said the funding for his daughter's college education will be impacted by what he and his wife anticipate having to pay out of pocket and the city use tax compounds on that burden. I'm not asking the city to rebuild our homes. We just need to get back on our feet, said McKean. His home on El Dorado Lane is gone. Before we can get back to having a house on our property again, we need to pay taxes on the materials. None of this was our fault, and it feels like you don't have our backs on this. McKean and his wife found out after the fire destroyed their home that it was underinsured. The use tax he contended will impact his ability to support his daughters. When we refinanced our house in 2020, our insurance covered us at $140 a square foot, and now we have to pay at least $325 a square foot to rebuild a house that's going to be smaller than the one we added on to before. Other residents expressed frustration with the promises, hoops, and paperwork that felt endless and ever-changing. i feeling that like the bar keeps moving and a lot of rebates and programs are actually forcing us to pay more money up front, said Russell Moore. Some folks can do that and some folks can't. Following the public comment, the council had an open discussion I really don't have words at this point to express how I feel, what you're going through right now, and I just want to acknowledge the sadness and trauma and the anger that I have heard from each and every one of you tonight, said Counselor Kyle Brown. Brown encouraged the council to set a goal of returning people to their homes as soon as possible and to find ways to do that. Brown summarized underinsurance and the use tax as the two major barriers that he's heard from residents. Mayor Ashley Stoltzman weighed pros and cons of a fee waiver of a rebate program in an attempt to give structure to the direction of the forthcoming conversations for city staff and council members as they headed into a budget retreat on Thursday. It is really important that whatever we do is sanctioned by the folks that were impacted by this, Councillor Maxine Most said. I just think we need to take direction from the community on this. And now turning to news from Superior, there's a new brewery opening up shop in Superior's former Old Chicago location. A slight shift in one direction, and maybe Bambi Brewing Company never happens. The new brewery, expected to open this year in the former Old Chicago space at 100 Superior Plaza Way, was spared by the Marshall Fire, but many of its neighbors were not. Husband and wife, Sean and Casey Bambi, bought the property last summer and were on vacation in Hawaii when they learned about the blaze. We didn't know if our building was even standing. Luckily, it survived, but the hotel next door did not. Sean Bambi, pronounced like the Disney movie, is spelled B-A-M-B-E-I. Hence the brewery's deep deer-themed logo told Biz West, we thought, well, now we're in a community that needs a local gathering place such as a brewery even more. Bambi got into craft brewing during college at Colorado State University in the early 1990s as a hobby. At the time, I was a big fan of Odell's 90 shilling, he said, before he took a series of engineering and computer science positions over the next couple of decades. Eventually, Bambi decided that brewing was something that I might want to do forever, and he went back to school at the University of Vermont to study the business of brewing. After he got laid off from a corporate job last year, Bambi recalls a friend telling him, Well, I guess it's time you open that brewery. Bambi Brewing Company is building a seven barrel system in the roughly 6,600 square foot building that formerly housed the chain pizzeria. The location is expected to feature about a dozen Bambi beers on tap at any time, a variety of flavors of house heart seltzers, a full bar with cocktails made with booze from local distilleries, and a kitchen with a limited menu featuring American bar food favorites such as burgers and wings. Additionally, the brewery will have a good number of TVs because I'm a huge sports fan, Bambi said, as well as space for live music. The couple hopes to open by November or December of this year. There are supply, supply chain issues that we're still figuring out, but that's the time frame we're hoping for," he said. Superior Board sends developer revisions back to Planning Commission. With the recently challenged gun ordinance removed from Monday's agenda, the Superior Board of Trustees meeting primarily Attended to the issue of the proposed Coal Creek Innovation Park development. After a lengthy public comment session following a presentation of revisions by the developer Ranch Capital, the board unanimously postponed a vote to approve the new plan and instead sent the revised plans back to the Planning Commission for a review. Board of Trustee Neil Shaw expressed the decision, recognized The applicant had put a tremendous amount of work into the project, and they could use the opportunity to go back to the Planning Commission to discuss the changes following the unanimous no vote. The previous designs submitted by the developer were unanimously rejected by the Commission at its June meeting, something that the trustees alleged has never happened before. The proposed development would revolve around a life science research center which the project team explained as a site dedicated to the study of all sciences that involve the scientific study of living organisms and their life processes. Covering a wide array of subjects from genetics and microbiology to botany and astrobiology, new breakthroughs are happening daily all over the world, according to Ranch Capital's presentation. And like similar campuses in Boulder and Fort Collins, this would position Superior to attract companies and talent from the life sciences sector while activating the proposed mixed use and residential corridors of the site. Bill Jenks, who is Vice President of Ranch Capital said, after receiving feedback of a perceived corporate curtain that separated Superior and McCaslin Boulevard, he challenged the design team to make the campus feel more connected to the rest of Main Street. In addition to a modification to the orientation, of the parking garage, the new design plans presented on Monday evening increased walkability and added connecting pathways and improved pedestrian-friendly landscaping. The overall height of the parking garage was downsized and the structure rotated 20 feet. Facade materials were also chosen from a material palette that was more consistent with the downtown superior atmosphere residents shared frustration that the new version still didn't reflect the original vision or promise nor the character of superior others expressed that it felt as if the town was being pressured by the developer to accept the plans despite a number of outstanding concerns and uncertainties from appearances to tax liabilities mayor pro tem mark blassis Referenced several original design guidelines that were absent from the current proposal and that residents expressed concern that the plans didn't reflect what was marketed to them and that was substantially different than what was sold to them. Jenks said that he felt great personal strife and was disappointed that people felt that they were not fairly treated. I'm an architect and I'm a planner. We are here to create a vision and sometimes we draw things that we want to happen but they don't always happen, he said. Residents also expressed skepticism with the if you build it, they will come approach, citing other life science complexes that already exist or planned along the Front Range and the risk of big, vacant spaces rather than a building full of tenants. Jenks cautioned that if the bill didn't happen as planned, the residents could face tax levies to make up for not capturing the revenue that the team speculated the town would generate from the park. And offered no financial analysis supporting those claims. The growing frustration on my part is that in the last five years not a single building has been completed in downtown Superior said James Creese, who signed the contract on his downtown home five years ago this week. And now tonight we're hearing that there's this incredible urgency that we must approve it tonight because if we don't we've missed the opportunity and because if we don't they're going to go someplace else. My fear with the way that things have gone throughout this project, that if it's the urgency time, might have already run out on the project. I do think it's time for us to take a breath and not rush through it, Chris said. If it takes another few weeks, then that's what it takes. Let's make sure we're doing this in the correct way, so that five years from now, we aren't sitting here again, wondering where the buildings were going that were supposed to be here, but in four years as of tonight. In other news, EAT, Boulder and Broomfield County nonprofits are to receive grants as part of Centura Health's expanded $5 million Health Equity and Advancement Fund. This fund aims to help organizations fulfill their missions. From feeding our friends and neighbors who face food insecurity, to helping those battling to get equal access to healthcare, these new and expanded community partnerships will allow us to reach people who might otherwise continue to struggle," said Dr. Oswaldo Granado. He is Senior Vice President-in-Chief, Diversity and Inclusion Officer at Centura Health. Centura Health on Wednesday announced a record total of 61 grants for organizations in Colorado and Western Kansas. The program was created last year and awarded grants to 19 total organizations, of which three of those for Boulder County agencies. The grants this year ranged from between $25,000 and $148,000 that were awarded to programs that serve diverse and underserved populations, programs that focus on diverse caregivers and leverage collaborations with other partners to increase social impact. A total of 222 applications were received, equaling $29 $29 million in requests. We recognize that there is a tremendous need in our community to ensure that every family, every neighborhood, and every community has the opportunity to live the healthiest life possible, which is why Centura took the bold step in 2022 and raised the fund from $1 million to $5 million, Granardo said in the news release. As neighbors serving neighbors, our mission calls us to do more and we are excited to see the positive impact that our grants will have on the world around us. A second-time recipient was Coal Creek Meals on Wheels, which received $25,000 in both years from the healthcare Agency. Coal Creek Meals on Wheels serves residents in Lafayette, Louisville, Superior, and Erie by providing those communities with daily nutritious meals and related support services. We are incredibly grateful to have been selected for this funding opportunity from Centura Health," said Lark Rambo, who is the Coal Creek Meals on Wheels Executive Director. This support will allow us to continue alleviating barriers to affordable and nutritious meals and transportation for some of our community's most vulnerable and overlooked residents, many of who are at risk of hunger and isolation. The program brings new opportunities to the organizations, such as the Coal Creek Mills and Wills, which enhances the overall health and well-being of the region, Granardo said in the news release. By supporting their four critical mill programs, this new and expanded community partnership will allow us to reach people who might otherwise continue to struggle, he said. It is truly a blessing to be here for those that our mission calls us to serve. Boulder and Broomfield County nonprofits who received funding this year include Cultivate, Coal Creek Meals on Wheels, Community Food Share, Friends of Broomfield, Little Friends, Safe Shelter of St. Brain Valley, Veterans Community Project Outreach Center, and the Wild Plum Center. And now we turn to news from Lafayette, long standing Lafayette Community Police Academy starts a new session in August as a way to educate citizens and reinforce relationships with residents in the police department. Lafayette is offering a community police academy and this new session will begin August 24th. The 13-week academy is open to residents age 15 and older. It began 20 years ago as a way to provide an overview of the department's policies, divisions, and functions. With a greater understanding of the tasks and situations the police officers experience, the graduates become somewhat like ambassadors between the police and the Lafayette community. The Deputy Chief of Police, Brian rasipa said, it's beneficial in any aspect. The Academy puts participants in a number of experiences, providing classroom sessions while learning about laws, paperwork, protocol, procedures that the job demands to a day with a member of the SWAT team to an overview of traffic stops. Rosa Pajla said that the course addresses subject matter in detail that most people who are not in law enforcement just don't have the exposure to. And it's not just the citizens who are the students. Rosa Pajla said, because the program structure facilitates conversations that might not otherwise occur within the community. The academy gives people a chance to air their complaints, to discuss them and see if their complaints are valid or invalid, he said. It might be a conversation with a SWAT member, it might be with a detective, or it might be with the police chief. Those conversations also give the department insight into what the community is feeling what perceptions might be out there, and Rosa Podula stressed the value in that for the police department. We may do things that seem unusual to the public, and oftentimes the questions about that are answered. It helps the community understand, but it also helps us understand it better from their point of view. From the first class in August, participants will meet once a week until November 16th. Participants will not use firearms during the course and applications and background checks are required. Applications are available through www.lafayetteco.gov and they're also available at the police department. Classes will take place at the Lafayette Police Department and Municipal Court Building. And combining more news about beer and more news from Lafayette, a Lafayette-based craft brewer has won three medals and several other breweries in the Boulder Valley in northern Colorado also won medals over the weekend at the U.S. Open Beer Championship. More than 9,000 beers representing 150 styles were entered into the competition. That competition was held in Oxford, Ohio. Colorado-based brewers collected one gold medal, along with seven silver and seven bronze medals. The gold went to an imperial red ale called Wreak Havoc. That was produced by Longmont-based Bootstrap Brewing, which has also took home silver for Chillax, its American-style fruit beer. Lafayette-based Liquid Mechanics Brewing Company garnered three medals, including silvers, for a chili pepper beer called Ring-O, no, it's called Ring-O-Fire, <laughs> and an international pale ale called Cold Snap, as well as a bronze for its Peanut Butter Porter. Beyond the Mountain Brewing Company, based in Boulder, won a silver medal for its Klaas' Kolsch German-style beer, and a bronze for an imperial NE IPA called Headspin. For Boat Brewing and Barrel Project of Loveland, won a bronze medal in the historical beer category for Angry Banjo. The U.S. Open bills itself as the only major championship to allow gold medal winning beers from the American Home Brewers Association National Homebrew Competition to compete against professional breweries. Besides announcing this year's winners, the U.S. Open singled out its top 10 beer names among entrants. So uh, just for your listening pleasure, I am going to read the name of the top 10 beer names according to the beer championship. They include Julius Squeezer IPA, a beer called Tastes Like Flannel, there's one called There Goes My Pickle, a beer called Is Pronounced Frankenstein IPA, Another one called I Need More Cal Belgian. Another beer called Who's a Good Beer? And coach me if you can. There's a beer called It Goes in Your Mouth, Up Sheets Creek. And the winner was Still Not as Bitter as Your Ex. And now news from Erie. SVVSD gathers 200 educators in Erie for an AP for All workshop. Close to 200 educators spent a week at Erie High School learning how to become better advanced placement teachers and to create a more inclusive classroom. The Colorado Education Initiative is partnering with St. Brain Valley Schools to host the 11th annual AP for All Summer Institute. The College Board Certified Institute was held virtually during the last two years because of the pandemic. AP can be for everybody said College Board Consultant Jacqueline Stalworth, an AP English teacher at a high school near Washington, DC. Any teacher can make it inclusive if they're willing to do that work. St. Brain Valley has been recognized by the College Board for an increase in overall participation, participation of students of color, and growth in AP exam scores. In the past five years, overall AP student enrollment has increased by 43% to more than 5,400 students, and the number of Hispanic and Black students taking AP exams has also risen. We encourage teachers to encourage kids to take that risk, said Erie High School principal. Matt Buchler who is retiring, this week's session cover more than a dozen AP subjects. There's also a Capstone Summer Institute to help teachers with AP seminar and research classes. In a session for AP Biology teachers, presenter Kelsey Burris talked about teaching his first AP class more than 20 years ago in an environment where the only focus was producing high test scores. Students who didn't score well on sample AP tests given at the start of class were encouraged to drop the class, he said. And it was not fun to teach in that realm, said Burris, who was a college board consultant and high school teacher in Washington. Now, he said, teachers should give any student willing to try the option to take an AP class with the goal of having advanced classes mirror the same diversity as the school's lunchroom. As he talked about recruiting and supporting students, the teachers shared challenges at their schools. Those included a school that depends on teachers to encourage students of color to try advanced classes to one where it's mainly the students in honors classes, who are moved into AP classes. Kit Cashman, who teaches at a private international school in China, pointed to a study that shows that students who try AP classes are more likely to be successful in college even if they don't score well on the AP tests. I tell students it's not about the score, it's not about the grade. You're here and you're trying. Burr shared his grading system, which he modified from a pointless system used by an AP science teacher at Boulder's Fairview High School while Burris continues to assign grades. He gives answer keys for all the assignments other than the tests and allows students to suggest the grade that they should earn in the class, though he requires them to provide evidence through a journal to justify the grade. They know it's about the learning, it's not just getting it done, he said. During the institute, presenters shared resources and taught many lessons from asking teachers to try a writing assignment to having them do some lab work. College Board Consultant and Connecticut high school teacher Fred Vital showed AP Chemistry teachers how to create a ball of fire as a class demonstration. He heated a vial of candle wax to boiling and then rapidly cooled it over ice. The wax releases enough energy as it returns to a solid to produce a flash of flame, he said. You need energy to break things apart, not to put them together, he said and that can be a hard concept. This is a way to get kids to remember it. He said he wants to help teachers become more confident in their understanding of chemistry as well as to share activity ideas that he's found effective in his classroom. I want to help students learn more about science, he said. They're not all going to be chemistry majors. We just want to create citizens who are scientifically literate. Participants range from veteran teachers looking for new ideas to those who are teaching AP classes for the first time. Jessica Butte, an Erie middle school teacher who is moving to Erie High School in order to teach AP and regular chemistry this fall, wanted a refresher on high school chemistry and ideas on how to help prepare her students for the AP exam. Along with getting a refresher on the class content, she said she appreciated the opportunity to network with the other AP chemistry teachers and she appreciated the help with navigating the College Board systems. Plus, she said, it's fun to try some of the labs as students. I get to help kids learn chemistry and I get to learn more at the same time, she said. In More Erie News, the Erie Board of Trustees has advanced the Home Rule Initiative, a step forward on Tuesday night, voting five to two to adopt the ordinance that will ask voters this November to first approve the formation of a Home Rule Charter Commission and elect nine members to serve on that commission. If the formation of the commission is approved, the elected members would have 180 days to submit a proposed charter to the Board of Trustees, according to the ordinance. It is time to get out of our parents' basement, said Mayor Justin Brooks. Who voted in favor of the ordinance. This is not the first time the Home Rule Charter has been floated to residents of Erie, which is the largest statutory municipality in the state. As recently as 2019, the Board approved a schedule for conducting an election similar to what was approved on Tuesday night, but that schedule was derailed in 2020 because of the pandemic. Board members Andrew Sawuch and Brandon Bell voted against the ordinance. If you go back and look at the history with this, when Broomfield became their own city and county, and they didn't account for the fact that when they weren't part of Jeffco and Adams and Boulder, now they had to have their own police department, their own sheriff, Bill said in the discussion before the vote. There are unexpected costs with these things, and I think that we did not do all the work to have those kinds of items and address those kinds of items to the public. Trustee Emily Barr had a different view of the home rule potential. I think as a board, we are tasked with being visionaries, and if we only plan for today, we're failing the town, she said, following Bell's comments. We have to set ourselves up to be able to be successful in the future and to grasp the opportunities that come forward, and that being a home rule town would afford us. Citing the results of an earlier survey, which asked respondents how likely they were to approve a home rule measure, Saw watched, said that he didn't feel that the evidence showed that residents of Erie were strongly in favor of the home rule initiative. I understand the potential positives, but we've not shown that we would be able to complete what would be necessary, he said on Wednesday. We need to show that we are prepared to have this occur and then put it on the ballot. Erie Board of Trustees Moles Over Airport Repairs. The Erie Board of Trustees, at its meeting on Tuesday evening, recommended a study session to examine the unrealized potential of the Erie Municipal Airport as well as to address the overdue repairs for the facility. The Board made the recommendation after the annual airport manager's report. The Erie Airport is owned by Erie but it's operated by Vector Air Management. And according to the airport's website, the private company operates as the airport's anchor fixed-base operator, providing services from aircraft rental to flight instruction, aircraft repair, inspection and maintenance, and other services. Jason Hurd, who is the airport manager, presented the annual report to the board. Although an assessment by the state calculated the airport has an estimated economic impact of $35 million for the surrounding area between jobs and people traveling in and out of the airport, no real income is generated for the town. The city reportedly collects about $3,000 in lease fees and Victor Air manages it, performing daily and weekly inspections and maintenance, making sure that lighting is operational and that aircraft are securely tied down and inspecting and maintaining the fuel island. Heard identified the dilapidated state of the airport's main hangar and office building, with some offices impacted by so much recurring water damage from leaks in the roof that they are no longer usable. The airport manager explained that this building was built more than 30 years ago and has outlived the average lifespan of a hangar. As board members floated potential revenue opportunities, such as building rental hangars, board member Andrew Savoch recommended a fall study session to explore opportunities for improvements and generating more revenue at the airport outside of the tax collected from jet fuel. It may be one of the more underutilized properties that the town has, he said. Medallion Hunt kicks off in Erie. Amateur treasure hunters take note. In the spirit of celebrating Parks and Rec month in July, the town of Erie has kicked off medallion mania, hiding a coveted and limited edition medallion with the embossed with the town seal in a park. Ashley Berger, Erie's communication and community engagement specialist, explained that the tradition began back in 2017 and was inspired by a similar treasure hunt in Westminster. It has really become a cool annual tradition, especially on social media she said, estimating that a few hundred families participate every year. And people really look forward to it. The first clue for this year's hunt was available to the public on Monday, July 18th. It can be viewed on the Erie Parks and Recreation social media channels, that's Facebook and Instagram. The first family to find the medallion will win a prize basket with items to help them continue discovering Erie's Parks and Recreation this summer. Last year's medallion was found under a tree, but not quite in plain sight. Berger explained that the location is always challenging to find. The intention isn't to create a treasure hunting frenzy, but to get people exploring places and trails that they might might not yet be familiar with. We just want the community to get outside and explore our amenities, explore more places, and realize how many miles of trails we have right in our own backyard. In other Boulder County news, Mom organizes talk by Fentanyl, Inc. Ben Westhoff was planning to write a book on the hallucinogenic drug ecstasy, also known as MDMA. But as he researched, he found that most recreational drugs now sold as ecstasy contain very little MDMA. Instead, he was hearing about a new synthetic drug or about new synthetic chemicals coming from China. They were cheap, they were easy to produce, and increasingly used in illegal drugs. One fentanyl stood out as especially deadly. His book Fentanyl Inc. documents the origins of fentanyl and how fake pills cut with the synthetic opioid are spurring the worst drug crisis in American history. It's an entirely new landscape for young people compared to when I was in my teens and 20s, he said. Any pill or any powder bought off the black market can have fentanyl in it. There's so little information out there about this danger. A lot of kids just have no idea. Westhoff is the main speaker at a seminar online event organized by Boulder mom Kate LaCroix. She committed to raising awareness after one of her eldest daughter's best friends, an 18-year-old died of a fentanyl overdose in February 2021. More deaths of teens and young adults have followed. She said that several factors made it challenging for local agencies to warn the public that fentanyl-laced pills were killing young people in Boulder County, including the stigma of drug use, maintaining privacy for grieving families, and the months that it can take to receive toxology reports following a death. Colleges, including the University of Colorado, are not required to report overdose deaths. It's hard to get the word out, LaCroix said. It's hard to connect the dots about the seriousness of this epidemic. I wanted to make good on my promise to draw awareness with this event. The online talk with middle and high school students encouraged to attend along with their parents will be held at 6.30 p.m. September 13th. Tickets are $39 each and include a digital copy of Fentanyl, Inc. To buy tickets, you can go to eventbrite.com. Other panelists will be Jackie Long from Cali's Backyard and reporter Jen Brown from the Colorado Sun. She's covered fentanyl overdoses in Boulder County. The talk will be followed by a question and answer session. A portion of the ticket sales will go to Denver-based nightlife health and safety group called Dance Safe. Counterfeit pills tainted with fentanyl have become increasingly common locally and throughout the state. The pills are made to look like the name brand medication such as Oxycodone and Xanax. The Denver Post recently reported that an estimated 46 children and teens between the ages of 10 and 18 died from drug overdoses in 2021, and 35 of those fatalities involved fentanyl, according to the preliminary death data from the Colorado Department of Public Health and Environment. That is up 28% from 2020, when the state recorded 36 overdose fatalities among people ages 10 and 18. By comparison, Colorado saw 12 people in that age group die from overdoses in 2019, according to the agency. McCroy keeps a supply of test strips and Narcan handing them out to young people and friends. Narcan is the brand name of Naloxone, which is the nasal spray that can reverse an overdose of fentanyl if given quickly. Boulder County earlier this summer has provided training sessions on using NARCAN, including one for teens and young adults. Boulder's Natural Highs program is another resource for teens who want access to NARCAN. Both school districts, Boulder Valley and St. Brain Valley, are stocking NARCAN in schools. McCroy, who said that Friends have dubbed her the NARCAN lady, advocates for education on how to use the test strips and NARCAN over telling people young people to avoid all drugs. You don't have to go into or be a more morality place, she said. Teens are all gas and no breaks. That's just not the best strategy to say if we don't do anything. Knowledge is power. Westhoff noted that many teens and young adults who have died or almost died are not addicts. They're just experimenting and they don't realize what looks like a real pill is instead a counterfeit tainted with a deadly amount the synthetic opioid and now we turn to the editorial page where the editorial board has has written an article entitled boulder must be prepared for the next fire it's tempting to say that the marshall fire was a freak occurrence the conditions were horribly perfect with dense and ever-spreading urbanization an extremely amplified mountain wave causing wind gusts to top 100 miles per hour, and an unusually wet spring that was followed by an extreme drought. Considering these circumstances, it's no wonder that investigators concluded that all attempts to halt the spread of this particularly freak occurrence, which burned 1,084 homes to the ground, destroyed dozens of businesses, and also left two people dead, That all attempts to halt the spread of the fire were doomed to fail. The truth is, though, today, freak occurrences are getting less and less freakish and becoming more and more normal occurrences. Climate change is having real and tangible impact on Colorado, and extreme weather events are getting more common. As the planet warms, the high plains are getting drier. This means that the next freak occurrence might be closer than we care to imagine. So now is the time for Boulder and Colorado as a whole to take action to ensure that we are doing everything in our power to be prepared for the next unprecedented situation. Many of the first steps toward creating a more unified and coordinated fire response were laid out in the county's after-action report that was published last month. The report brought together decision makers and resources to obtain critical elements of information, to establish timelines, to recount experiences based on areas of effort and extract what went well and what gaps or needs were present. Basically the intention of compiling the report was to learn and the report offers plenty to learn from. The task now is to ensure that everyone is listening. The most notable area for improvement, according to the report, is interagency communications and alert systems, and specifically, the need to optimize communications between incident command and dispatch. Communications on the radio was nearly impossible. The report reads, cell phone communication also proved to be difficult as cell towers quickly became overloaded and calls did not always go through in a timely manner. It is important, then, for the county and the cities therein to swiftly lay the foundations of interagency communication and standard operating procedures and to set pre-established decision-making agreements to help with the alert and warning challenges inherent in a disaster on the scale of the Marshall Fire. Also, the utmost importance is the expedient establishment of an accurate and effective wireless emergency alert system that does not require opting in. The current alert system, which has been put into place since the Marshall Fire, is in need of refining. During the NCAR Fire, people as far away as Wyoming got alerts. While it is always better to alert too many people rather than too few, not having accurate accurate information can lead results to be unsure if they truly need to evacuate. According to the report, in order to enact changes to the necessary emergency alert system, local agencies must lobby the Federal Communications Commission. This means that Boulder needs help from its representatives in Washington, specifically Senators Michael Bennett and John Hickenlooper, as well as Representative Joe Nagoose. If refining the technology will help save lives, then Colorado leaders should be stepping up to make it happen. To be clear, the brave Frontline workers who fought the fire went above and beyond the call of duty to try to control the blaze and try to minimize the destruction and keep our communities safe. Despite the problems with communication, chain of command, ineffective alert systems, and the danger inherent in fighting a colossal urban wildfire, people just showed up and made it work, the report acknowledges. And of course, it's unwise to look at, at such a tragic disaster and begin Casting stones of blame. There is, as far as has been reported, no real blame to go around, save for the continued degradation of the environment that has seen extreme weather and drought become commonplace. Considering the tinderbox conditions in late December, it almost feels that everything that could have been done was done. Almost because there is no situation, no amount of freak occurrences that excuse the loss of life. So let us commend. All the harrowing work that occurred while asking our officials, elected or otherwise, to take the after-action report to heart. Lobby Washington for the necessary changes to the emergency alert system. Optimize communications between incident command, dispatch, institute, interagency operating procedures, and standards. Also, establish the required decision-making agreements. Give people on the front lines every chance of success. Let's ensure our community has all the tools and resources necessary to be even more prepared for the next freak occurrence, because unfortunately, there will be a next freak occurrence. And now we turn to some local obituaries, including Joanne Elizabeth Falcon, who passed away on July 15th after a devastating but brief illness. Known to others as Ms. Falcon, Jojo, Bunky, or simply Jo. she wholeheartedly shared her infectious laugh, generous spirit, and huge heart with the world. Born to Paul and Marie Falcon in Greensburg, Pennsylvania, on December twenty-second, nineteen forty-one, Jo was a beloved school teacher in Pennsylvania prior to moving her family to Boulder and then teaching at Annunciation Catholic School in Denver and in Boulder Valley School District at Eisenhower Elementary and Alicia Sanchez Elementary. She retired from teaching in 1998, but continued in her role as a compassionate property manager for many in the Boulder area. Joanne lived her life with joyful boldness, unbridled generosity, and a tender kindness. she didn't set out to be joe was a role model for others in the way she jumped into life saying yes to every road trip red rocks concert and black diamond ski runs ever presented to her she brought out a zest in life to all those lucky enough to encounter her on her adventures she's preceded in death by her parents and beloved son shane bihana her spirit will continue to shine through the lives of her daughter Chelsea Bihana, her granddaughter Josephine Briggs, lifelong partner Pam Dinagur, seven siblings, three aunts, 36 cousins, and countless friends. Throughout her 80 years, she donated to any organization that ever asked for money, and she would never ask for donations to be made in her name. Instead, she asked that everyone acknowledge her passing through her go-to actions of kindness and generosity, by offering both to another person as you move through your day-to-day and always. They are celebrating her friends, will be celebrating her life and love of hot fudge Sundays and thoughtful nature at the Unity Columbine Spiritual Center at 8900 Arapahoe Road in Boulder on Monday, July 25th at 2 p.m. There will also be a celebration mass at St. Paul's Church in Greensburg in mid-August. Timmy Lee Benson was born on Monday, January 6, 1975, in Colorado Springs to Janet and Jimmy Benson. He ended his life on Friday, July 8, 2022, in Lafayette, Colorado, after a prolonged battle with mental illness. He spent his younger years living in Colorado Springs, where he attended Rampart High School. He moved to Lafayette in 2003. He had a variety of jobs, but his passion was working in construction, as he enjoyed working with his hands. Timmy was happiest when he worked when he was outdoors. He loved animals, especially birds and prairie dogs, and he fed those prairie dogs and called them Henrys. He really enjoyed riding bicycles and seeing how fast he could go on them, but mostly, Timmy just wanted to have fun no matter what he was doing. Timmy is survived by his mother, Janet Benson of Lafayette, who loved him more than words can express, his stepfather, Keith Graham of Lafayette, two brothers, Joey Benson of Colorado Springs and Kevin Benson of Ferrum, Virginia, aunt and uncle Nancy Clark and Tony Clark of Broomfield, Colorado. He was preceded in death by his father, Jimmy Benson, of Colorado Springs, Colorado. Bruce Kowalski, 69 years of age in Louisville, Colorado, passed away peacefully on June 6th. He was surrounded by family and friends. Bruce was born and raised in Red Bank, New Jersey. He moved to Louisville in 1976. Bruce worked at NCAR in Boulder for 37 years as a carpenter where he said he had earned five master's degrees within different trades. Bruce was an avid hockey player in his younger years and an avid spectator of the sport later in life. He also had a deep love for music. This was discovered when he first started playing the accordion as a young boy. He lived life to the fullest through simple pleasures, chatting with friends and family, eating ice cream and cookies, Parties with his granddaughter, gardening, hiking, spending time outdoors, and helping others on their journey to sobriety. Bruce had an uncanny ability to reach people and change lives in a deep and positive way. Bruce is survived by his children Hunter and his wife Margot, and his wife Erin and their daughter Emery, and his youngest son Jared Kobalski. You have been listening to the. Boulder County News, and my name is Leslie Madsen. If you enjoyed this program, please register for our free services at www.aincolorado.org or by calling 303 786 7777.